0: This episode of AHLA Speaking of Health Law is brought to you by AHLA members and donors like you. Today, the authors of the new AHLA book, Health Care and the Business of Cannabis, discuss state and federal laws, the obstacles businesses may face, and more. On November 11, 2021, AHLA will also offer a 90-minute live webinar on tax issues related to medical cannabis. For more information, please search for cannabis at educate.americanhealthlaw.org slash catalog. Welcome, everyone. Uh, My name is Lisa Gora, and I'm a shareholder with the law firm of Willens, Goldman & Spitzer. I'm located in uh, Woodbridge, New Jersey, uh, and I am a corporate healthcare and now cannabis attorney. Um, So I represent... uh, healthcare clients from medical practices to individual physicians, licensed facilities in New Jersey, uh, hospitals, and now that practice has now dovetailed into also the cannabis practice. So welcome everyone again to HLA's first podcast to discuss the cannabis industry and the somewhat recent phenomenon of cannabis law. Only in the past few years have legal scholars began to think of cannabis law as an independent field of law worthy of study in its own right. Previously, when people thought of cannabis law, they would tend to think of criminal laws, regulating the use, possession, and distribution of cannabis. And those laws certainly raise a number of important interesting issues. However, there's actually much more to cannabis law than just those criminal issues. In fact, cannabis law is one of the more far-reaching of legal topics today because it necessarily implicates uh, a number of different areas of law, and that is why we're here today to discuss how cannabis law is a multidisciplinary area that implicates not only business law, not only healthcare law, uh, but it also implicates real estate law, intellectual property, tax tax law, banking, investment and securities, uh, mergers and acquisitions, and healthcare law again. And here with me today are two of my cannabis attorney colleagues who both specialize in cannabis as well as other areas of law. So if I can have both Richard Chang and Ale- Alexander Malashev introduce themselves, um, their areas of practice and where you're located.
1: Sure, um, Lisa, I'll go first. My name is Richard Chang. I am in Dallas, Texas. Um, I got into the cannabis industry about um, eight years ago in late 2013, historically like you, Lisa. uh, I've always been a healthcare regulatory and corporate attorney representing a a myriad of different types of healthcare providers and private equity and private investors um, in everything from uh, skilled nursing facilities, home health hospice, uh, you know, MSOs, uh, retail medicine. And about, I would say, again, eight years ago, I had a very fortuitous moment where the firm said, hey, you're one of those weird healthcare guys. Maybe you can help us figure this out. Um, The client wants to know the legal liabilities for a physician prescribing versus recommending medicinal cannabis. And keep in mind, this is 2013 and I'm also in Texas, right? And so, I fell into it uh, and obviously found it very intriguing and have, um, you know, as they say, the rest is history. Later on, joined a a AML 200 firm, which at the time had one of the few uh, national cannabis practices in the country. And then from there, I had a very good partner that said, hey, listen, I'm so, I'm so busy with this, you know, with uh, licensing in my home state, you're really going to have to take on everything else. So it compelled me and gave me an opportunity to really grow and cut my teeth on a variety of different things. Um, and then subsequently to that, I joined a, a big global firm and launched a hemp practice group there. And um, of course, now I'm at an all health healthcare and cannabis boutique and represent everything from physicians to labs to Uh, cultivators all the way down to uh, retail and everything in between along the supply chain. Uh, And lastly, I I teach cannabis law as an adjunct at UNT Law School.
0: Great, very, very highly skilled, qualified uh, speakers we have today. So then I'll pass it over to Alex to introduce yourself.
2: Hi, uh, my name is Alex Malashev. I'm a partner at Carl Cara Ledger in New York. Uh, I am a uh, litigator and regulatory lawyer by trade. As with everyone else, nobody started as a cannabis lawyer. Um, New York has traditionally been the place where uh, companies came to fundraise. Uh, While we have had a uh, medical cannabis law on the books for about seven or eight years, uh, it's actually has been very limited. Um, There were only about five uh, vertically integrated medical uh, cannabis providers initially that extended to 10. Um, that is not the law anymore. We, we had a very big amendment uh, earlier this year in April. Uh, yesterday, we finally got our last um, board member approved to our regulatory board. So uh, we are going to launch and it's going to be uh, very different from what we've had. So we're going into the um, adopting the uh, alcohol model for, for cannabis, which is going to be decentralized for adult use. Um, right now we're dealing with people who actually want to participate and apply. That has certainly not been uh, traditionally what we've done in New York. Uh, again, we come from fundraising, um, a lot of Canadian companies that used to come to the United States, the roll-ups, IP kind of work, uh, and uh, also a lot of handwork. Uh, we are now tra- transitioning to actual cannabis licenses and operations in New York, which we'll be very interested in.
0: Great, well, thank you for that introduction. And just for the um, sake of the audience, you know, I'd like to highlight that you know, Richard, again, is from Texas here, we have Alex, who's from New York, um, but practices in in the New York and New Jersey space. I am from New Jersey. I focus on the the cannabis and and healthcare practices in New Jersey. And then uh, Richard is from Texas, but also practices in Oklahoma. So what the importance is with that is that we now understand that there is this cannabis industry, but yet this patchwork of different laws and different processes within each state. So as attorneys, we all understand that we have the the federal regime that we have sometimes to um, emphasize for our clients, especially in the healthcare space when you're dealing with hospitals and other licensed facilities who are receiving Medicare and Medicaid. Um, So first and foremost, you 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 look at the federal uh, overlay, the federal laws, then you look at the state laws. Each of us are are practicing in different states, and so you have to be in tune with the laws of that state, Um, but then also with regards to maybe local laws that each state has. So um, with that in mind, as you heard, Richard who practices in Texas and then does work in Oklahoma. um, I have a few questions that I would like to ask them, but before we get into that, I just want to highlight that presently, given the patchwork of different laws in the United States, 30, the 36 states have approved medicinal cannabis programs and 19 states have approved recreational programs. So with that in mind, Richard, what is the current status of the legal cannabis market in Texas with regards to medical? Does it have medical? Does it also have recreational? And you could also shed some light on Oklahoma.
1: Sure, um, not a problem, Lisa. In, in Texas, um, the recreational is, uh, an, it does not exist. It is, it has not been talked about um, very much. Um, I think Texas is going to be one of the last states that really approach the recreational play in the cannabis industry, um, but to many people's surprise, um, in, in Texas, uh, Senate Bill 339 passed on Janu- in June 1st, 2015, so in, in reality, Texas has had a medical marijuana program for six years now. It started off, it started off with one qualifying condition, and that being intractable epilepsy. Uh, it didn't really grow in 2017. In 2019, uh, and of course, in Texas, we, uh, the Congress meets every other year on odd years. In 2019, they expanded it to seven different qualifying conditions. One of which has, um, it's I believe it's like neurological degenerative diseases, which has like 30 different categories. That sounds like a lot, but it's really not. It's still very limited, and the amount of THC that's um, that's available in um, in the products is is at the time it was. It's always been 0.5%, and just most recently it raised to 1%. Uh, in the 2021 session, it it actually, uh, we added a, um, a condition called PTSD. And of course, PTSD is pretty broad in how you define it. And what we're seeing is that, um, typically, we're, we were, historically, we've looked at uh, between five to 700, uh, 700 um, enrollees into the program. Uh, and for the longest time, it, it hovered around 2,000 to 3,000 patients. Um, this month alone, because of PTSD that uh, was activated um, September 1st, uh, it's estimated to be about 1,200. And there's, there, it's, a, it's, it's predicted to be about a 30% growth rate between now and May. Um, But that's really the the, the legal status in Texas. Um, The Department of Public Safety oversees it. Uh, There's only three licensees in the state of Texas at this moment.
0: And all medicinal Um,
1: ATCs. It's all medicinal. Yeah, it's all medicinal and uh, it's, it's vertically integrated, which allows the licensees to uh, to cultivate, to process, and to uh, to 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 retail. And typically in Texas, um, be, really two of the three licensees are active. The, one of one of the three is not even active. They'll set up drop-off sites and sometimes it can be at nonprofit organizations or many times at physician offices. Um So the physicians, they themselves do not actually dispense. They uh, what they do is they see the patient if if the patient can qualify for the Texas Compassionate Use Program, it's what's it's called or Tcup. They go into the system. They register them into a system what's called the CUR system, and um, they become a patient. And of course, whenever they get, they pick up the 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 tincture or the or or, or the lozenge or whatever product they're picking up based off of the prescription that the physicians actually provide. And I do want to emphasize the work prescription, even though there is a nuance. And the reason I say that is because under the Texas Occupations Code 169, it does actually use the work prescription over and over again. So that's the landscape of the Texas Medical Marijuana Program. Uh, a lot of the cannabis um, activity here is centered around hemp. And of course, the uh, the wellness, uh, the wellness products, delta eight is obviously, um, you know, a topic that's that's talked about here, and um, people are getting in on that. So, uh, I would say that um, it's anticipated that the medical, medical marijuana program will increase, but there's also a lot of political, um, uh, we'll just say some pro- political turmoil in, in the sense that, obviously. The three licensees have been granted these three licenses, which are which are very expensive, and they've invested a lot of money. So there is some pushback with the current licensees. Say, "Hey, DPS Governor Abbott, do not issue any more licenses. We got to get our money back and make our money back before you before you issue any more additional licenses." And of course, other states are interested in um, in Texas because it's a it's a big state, has a lot of people, and there's potential there.
0: Very interesting. Well, um, <clears throat> I I think it's worthy to note that then Texas at least compared to the states that we'll be talking about today is, is certainly more limited than at least New York and New Jersey and New York and New Jersey still are in their infancy stages as well. So to, to juxtapose that which Richard just provided us with the landscape of Texas, let's hear about New York. So Alex, go ahead.
2: Sure. Thanks, Lisa. And it's, it's very interesting to uh, hear what Richard said about the uh, three existing licensees trying to pull up the ladder behind them, because that's actually what happened with our initial five licensees about, uh, at this point, three or four years ago, uh, when they fought tooth and nail to make sure the other five licenses were not issued. They ultimately lost. Uh, they actually filed the lawsuit trying to stop the regulator from issuing the extra licenses. And the argument was very much the same as we're not making any money. Um, you know, Why are you going to issue more? Uh, I think uh, as of the beginning of this year, we had about 200,000 registered patients in the system, a little north of that, which uh, while certainly a lot, probably more than what's in Texas, um, it's a very small percentage of uh, our population. Um, my unofficial survey says there are a lot more than 200,000 uh, pot smokers in the state of New York. So right, and that actually had you know um, they phased out um, a lot of the uh, restrictions and uh, you know criminal uh, possession um, thresholds uh, in in earlier rounds of of trying to amend the statute, but in April uh, we finally had. Uh, an amendment that actually uh, is phasing out. Uh, The current program is transitioning into an all new board. So um, we had a comprehensive overhaul bill um, that now allows us to have in parallel a uh, adult use, which is um, going to be a big market and a medical. Um, The medical providers have actually been allowed to keep their integrated uh, licenses. Um, much like Texas, those are very expensive um, and they will be paying a lot to transition them. They'll be allowed to open up a few co-located adult use uh, dispensaries. Um, But the plan for New York, uh, at least, is to have a lot of decentralized licenses, uh, especially at the retail level. Um, And that is also part of New York's push for uh, social equity. Uh, So they are trying to reverse some of the... um, consequences of the, of the war on drugs. Uh, there's a preference for uh, people who have been impacted by the war on drugs on actually uh, getting some of those retail licenses. Uh, it remains to be seen how it's implemented. Um, a lot of my uh, work centers are sort of on the uh, fundraising portion. And uh, as you probably know, banking remains a big issue. So while the states are doing their best to maybe minimize uh, the application costs for some people uh, making it easier to get those uh, either in, in New York they're called social equity licenses in New Jersey they went with a um, you know provisional licenses and uh, you know something that allows people to get their foot in the door uh, but there's a lot of problems with uh, you know the actual operation because um, as as you sort of indicated there's a lot of tentacles here and uh, i tend to think of cannabis as an industry as opposed to a practice area. And there's a lot of issues and a lot of uh, legal issues. Um, One of the big ones is the tax. You know, you can't, uh, whether adult use or medical, uh, you cannot uh, take a lot of ordinary business deductions uh, because of uh, the IRS rules uh, that have to do with the fact that cannabis remains federally illegal. Uh, In fact, a lot of states replicate that at the state level as well. Um, and that's uh, something that uh, people who actually want to participate in the industry have to understand. So it, it's an ex- it's still expensive. Uh, we're still trying to think through how to uh, allow people who are not super well capitalized to actually get their foot into the door. Um, as, as you might know, um, you know, investment usually doesn't really come until you have uh, a license and it's an expensive process to get to that. Um, there's also some limits on, um, the ownership structures that social equity applicants can engage in you know how much control they can see so it remains to be seen how they actually work that out to actually on the one hand make it profitable enough for them to stay in business because there's actually a limit on the number of um you know licenses and you can't a lot of time to cross ownership uh, across the uh three tiers um so you know, work in progress. Uh, we, As I said, we just got our uh, last person appointed uh, to the board. That means uh, the rule writing process is going to start this year, hopefully, yep. uh, which means maybe we'll get some licenses next year. Yep. Uh, but um, the ATCs currently, which is uh, uh, our alternative care, care center, the, uh, alternative in- the centers, the- treatment centers. are called in New Jersey. Right, yeah. in New Jersey and in, in New York, they're just called you know, medical providers. Um, You know, they have a window now to actually get a jump on. uh, They'll probably be able to start dispensing uh, recreational before anyone else because, you know, the license is only the first step. uh, And then you have to.
0: That's very similar to to New Jersey. Um, And and I think out of the states that have already been mentioned, I'm at least happy to know I'm from New Jersey and we're at least the most progressive state out of the states being mentioned. Not anywhere near to California and Colorado, um, but we're certainly now past a little further than New York where we have a medicinal market, uh, the medicinal program where we have about 15 locations for our alternative treatment centers. Um, And then we do have adult use um, and we've at least Um, Sat everybody on our Cannabis Regulatory Commission, the board that regulates adult use, um, and as well have uh, issued our rules and regulations. Uh, So we hopefully will be seeing adult use sales, you know, sometime in in the first Uh, of 2022. Um, So certainly within the latter portion of that year, and it will be the medical alternative treatment centers that will be able to do that. Um, But just tying back a few things that everyone's already mentioned, I think it's very important for at least terms of this podcast to outline, you know, I like the word tentacles. I liked, you know, that each person is uh, uh, outlined that there's obstacles and and certain implications that anyone getting involved in this space, whether it's non-healthcare related, whether it is someone such as a physician or a hospital or other licensed facility that wants to get involved in this space, there are those those various tentacles you have to keep in mind. And and one of the things that that Alex brought up was tax issues. And that all goes to the federal regime, the federal law. So what I like to talk about is despite the legal frameworks created in each state, as we've heard about now regarding the regulation of cannabis activities, cannabis remains illegal at the federal level. So i.e. it's illegal to possess, manufacture, distribute cannabis because in the eyes of the, the federal government and pursuant to the federal control. Substances Act. Cannabis is a Schedule I drug, and therefore there's implications for anyone um, that is looking to get involved in this space from the federal overlay of of the federal laws. So with with that in mind, um, Richard, even as states have legalized the use, sale, cultivation uh, of medicinal cannabis, does that mean a physician can dispense cannabis for medical use? And this is something that you, you touched on earlier.
1: Yeah, Lisa. I mean, I, I think to your point. I think um, as a whole, you have to look at um, you have to you have to consider the fact that it is a Schedule One drug, and most physicians, um, not all they 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 are under various payer contracts. Um, many physicians are have a DEA uh, registration card. Um, you know, typically physicians uh, you, you, they don't really dispense per se. Uh, that's been my experience. Um, and you, of course you have to look at the word dispense and how it's defined under state law. It could be very different from state to state. Um, I would, you know, if I, if I were to represent a physician a couple of things I would look at is I would look to see if the uh, state medical board takes any position on what they can and can't do. Um, I would consider the fact that uh, if a physician is taking um, payer sources from a federal healthcare program that is a consideration. Um, now, granted, on the federal level, CMS has never expressly uh, come out with a very with a, with any particular um, guidance or any any particular uh, position on it. Um, however, if you you know if you re- if you look at the fine print with every Medicaid contract with any Medicare certification, you do agree that you are going to comply and here to not violate federal law. And by dispensing and uh, and providing, you know, a, a Schedule One substance, that does that does put you at risk, in my opinion. Um, now, granted, there hasn't been any enforcement actions that I know of on physicians that's done that, but I think it's it, you really do have to look at a couple things before you just jump into say, "Hey, can uh, you know a physician can or can't dispense?" Those are all considerations. I think. Similarly to healthcare law, it's it's never a black and white answer. Can you or can you? It's different. It's a very variations of shades of gray, and there's higher risk. There's lower risk, um, and there's also some federal uh, considerations too, like um, like the the Roy Walker farr Amendment, which I think now is called the um, the the, the McClintock Amendment, Amendment now, which that uh, federal source of protection does apply to. Um, medical marijuana programs on a state level, say, and it's been supported in the McIntosh case in 2016 in Ninth Circuit that says that if there's a strict compliance with uh, state medical marijuana uh, programs, that um, the, the Department of Justice is prohibited from allocating funds for the purposes of prosecution. So that's something to consider. Um, you know, there's also some other good case law, like the, there's a Walters case that actually talks about physicians who uh, recommend medical marijuana as opposed to prescribing me, uh, medical marijuana that that in itself is a source of protection that prohibits the DEA from withdrawing the DEA registration. Uh, hence the reason why the recommendation versus the prescription is a sensitive topic with physicians. So. That's my position on it.
0: Yeah, and I agree with you. I mean, I, I have those same um, concerns. Again, I, I, I it goes back to, and I want to emphasize what you said, is that it's just a risk <laughs> tolerance game at this point, is that there's considerations that as attorneys, we need to provide to our clients that are uh, in the healthcare space. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending upon their risk tolerance, you provide them the information with regards to these guidances, you know, protections that may be available under federal law. However, there's been no enforcement activity um, taken by any the federal agencies right now against healthcare entities. Um, but we never know if it, if it will come right. tomorrow or, or in a few years. We, so, so that's something that, again, the, the client has to consider. Um, so then even with that in mind, turning from the, the, the healthcare perspective to a non-healthcare perspective, um, with regards to the federal and state overlay, uh, when it comes to operating a legal cannabis-related business in a state where it is legal to sell, cultivate, transport, recreational cannabis, Alex, what are some of the obstacles that these businesses face from a banking investment perspective and and why?
2: Sure. Uh, And uh, the conversation I I always have with any of my clients who are seeking to invest in in this space is always, uh, you know, the scared straight uh, portion of the discussion up front, where I tell them all the horrible things that the federal government can theoretically do to you. Uh, And then we discuss sort of exactly what you said, which was the risk tolerance. Um, banking is is very much intertwined with federal law as are other sort of, you know, areas like uh, taxation and immigration and sort of everything where you have a uh, three letter acronym uh, agency being in charge, you're dealing with the federal government. And um, for investors, I, I, I sort of have developed some checklists that I go through and, uh, you know, everything from, you know, what is your immigration status, right? Are you a natural born U.S. citizen? Are you a, uh, you know, a green card holder are, are you know, are you a foreign investor? Because uh, anything to do with immigration, you're dealing with uh, customs and, uh, you know, immigration. And yeah, they've been pretty clear that, you know, as long as it remains federally illegal, uh, those are grounds to deny, you know, either an adjustment of status or maybe even facing a lifetime ban. So, uh, you know, risk tolerances, have to implicate that, and um, you know that that really depends on sort of your source of income. And uh, you know, I can never advise them not to be honest with the with the government. Like, why are you coming? You know, why are you even coming to an investment? I've had lawyer friends being stopped, uh, at, you know, at the border. They were ultimately allowed to enter, but you know, what kind of conference are you going to? Is this like a medical cannabis or recreational cannabis conference? Um, Taking a step back, banking is also very much uh, regulated. So you talked about the, uh, for, for simplicity, I'll call it the Raubacher amendment and, and what, what it does for, for uh, medical. Uh, Recreation has traditionally had very much less of a, a protection. Um, there is no congressional rider precluding you from being prosecuted. Uh, all of the protection had to do with was with the coal memorandum. So that's a, that's a sort of a term people in the industry know that was guidance by the Department of Justice to its AUSAs about how to use their prosecutorial discretion. It was never binding, but it outlined sort of a list of um, issues they should consider about, you know, as to whether to prosecute somebody. And that had to do with transportation across state lines, how strictly they're complying with either the medical or the recreational uh, laws in the states and how robust those laws are. You know, is any money getting diverted to cartels? Uh, you know, are you selling it to children? Um, are you growing cannabis on, sta- on federal lands? Uh, so once you went through that checklist, uh, they would sort of decide you know, whether or not to prosecute you. Um, that was issued during the Obama administration. Uh, shortly thereafter, it was actually incorporated by reference into the guidance that uh, FinCEN, which is the Department of the Treasury's anti-money laundering arm, uses. Uh, that remains on the books today. The Colmemo memo itself actually has got withdrawn by uh, Attorney General uh, Sessions when he was an attorney general for about six months. And uh, he was not a proponent of cannabis. And, and he withdrew that guidance and said it goes back to the discretion of, of the AUSAs. Nobody seems to have noticed. Uh, Nobody seems to have cared. Uh, It doesn't appear that anyone changed the way they're doing it. Uh, You know, I think the approach is, as as sort of was explained by the New Jersey uh, Supreme Court not too long ago in in their discussion of whether you're allowed to um, reimburse for insurance, is uh, de facto, it seems like, the federal government is not enforcing. Like they, they've realized the horse has left the barn and um, you're sort of um, have to deal with the facts on the ground. That being said, there are no protections for recreational. So you're really are dealing with risk tolerance and uh, that permeates everything from banking where you have uh, monitoring fees that increase the closer you get to the plant. So banks have come up with sort of tiers. You have plant touching where it's, it's sort of very limited. Uh, very regulated and very expensive. Then you have sort of the second tier, which I like to think of like the picks and shovels, the people who provide the lamps, the landlords, you know, not people actually, not licensees, but people who are very close to it. And then you sort of have tier three, which is where all of us sit, which are, you know, the accountants, the lawyers, the um, people who, uh, you know, provide uh, services. um, And, uh, it's important uh, sort of for the banks to know who they're dealing with. Uh, banks hate finding out they're banking somebody in cannabis uh, without uh, agreeing to do so up front. Uh, so those are issues that that sort of ha- always have to have to be dealt with. Um, those are also the same tiers that investors look at. And, um, you know, look, you're you're able to invest in uh, Canadian publicly traded companies that are, are listed on the U.S. Stock Exchange. So while, you know, if we were to put on our law school hats and be in a law school exam and, you know, are we, you know, are those investors uh, violating U.S. law? Well, you know, Nasdaq seems to have said no, but, you know, it's a theoretical, you know, supporting a, a cannabis business. And then you get into all those issues or, you know, does it apply across, you know, um, outside of the United States? Um, then you sort of get to, all right, you're investing in a business that is cannabis adjacent. And, Uh, you know, that issue came up with sort of PPP loans, uh, which excluded uh, businesses. Um, All all of those issues are sort of considerations of, you know, are you theoretically putting something on the board that you might have to um, deal with later on? Um, And the closer you get to the plant, the more danger uh, sort of increases. I will say that while there have been no prosecutions, it would not be accurate to say that the government is sitting on its hands. The Weed Maps subpoena out in California was issued. It was very broad. It actually went to both, you know, licensed and unlicensed um, dispensaries. Uh, that had a lot to do with uh, basically Weed Maps thumbing their nose at the regulator and saying we don't care uh, when they said don't list unlicensed dispensaries. Uh, that. Uh, you know, you never know uh, what the federal government does with all that information they collect, but they are collecting information, so they're they are keeping an eye out. Uh, and uh, you know, coloring within the lines is still the best advice. I think as lawyers, the most we can do, and uh, you know, ethically, is is to advise an investor or a doctor or anyone else about. Look, it's very easy for me to tell you what a federal law is. It's it's illegal, and I can't really give you much more advice on that. But I can help you comply with state laws and, and regulations. And that's sort of where we sit and that's the discussion we have with investors or doctors or operators. Well, thank
0: you very much. I mean, I think that this has all been really helpful. Um, we are at the end of the time for this podcast. So as just a last note, um, I just wanted to, again, show and, and have the audience understand why it's so important that anyone that's involved in any type of law may certainly fall into this cannabis industry at some point. You know, some of the key words that we've heard between both Richard and Alex are um, that it's, you know, not only physicians and hospitals and licensed care, um, licensed long-term care facilities, ambulatory uh, surgery facilities, Um, we have landlords that are holding on to real estate, we have bankers, we have investors, we have other types of ancillary services that are being created in this industry, which is the cannabis industry. And so it's at this point that we think it's imperative that any type of attorney at least understand the fundamental and practical considerations both legal, operational, um, for advising any client that you believe is going to get involved in this space, whether it's from holding a license within your state, within the medicinal cannabis program, the recreational cannabis program, um, whether it's any other type of healthcare entity that you represent. Um, We hope that at least the considerations we've discussed today will provide you with some the practical guidance that you can provide to your clients. Um, and so with that, we also want to um, provide you with a little information about a publication that HLA just published last summer. It's called the Healthcare and the Business of Cannabis Legal Questions and Answers, because simply uh, right now, it's it's a moving target, this, this cannabis uh, law, this cannabis industry. Um, as we've heard from both Richard and Alex, there's a lot of you know, these are the concerns, this is a federal law, but you know, what can we do in order to play in this game? Um, But while while also complying with the state and, and local laws, and um, if you have anyone that's interested in getting involved, certainly I would suggest and recommend um, looking out for that book, that publication from AHLA. Um, I was the the editor-in-chief with a colleague of mine, uh, Jenny Nelson Carney, uh, and Alex and Richard were both authors within that book. Um, so again, we're happy to have all been here. Richard and Alex, thank you so much for joining me. Have a great day.